what they really want is to be able to stay with their family. You know, and since there hasn't been a legalization since 86, many, many of my clients, my PD clients and many clients that I represent in immigration court, um, have been here since 86 and have no status. Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. Are you an inventor? Check us out at theborderchronicle.com, where we publish pieces every Tuesday and Thursday. Today, I am happy to have with me prominent lawyer, immigration lawyer, um, longtime community activist, Margot Cohen. Um, in this conversation, we are going to talk about um, the that Margot's um, practice has been at least temporarily suspended for for two years so she will talk about that but first Margot, I would just I just want to talk a little bit about your your background and history in fact in fact the first thing I want to ask you is we've known each other for a long time haven't we we have what it was, was it, has it been since what maybe the beginning of the migrant trail walk and two decades ago or even before that? I think it's a lot longer than that. Yeah, I think it's so, too. The Migrant Trail Lock, of course, Mar um, Margot has been involved with the Migrant Trail Lock since its inception in 2004, and that's a 75-mile walk from Sasabe to Tucson um, that takes place in May, June, to um, in solidarity with people crossing through the desert, especially those who have died or who's, who are currently crossing. And, um, but... Um, I wanted so your so we probably go way back and your your time as um, as a community activist working on these issues also goes way back. So I don't know if you could maybe start by talking how you how did you first become an immigration lawyer? Like what were some of the things that you were doing? Say like in the nineteen seventies, if we dare go back that far. <laughs> well. Um, I ran a strike, a strike for United Farm Workers in the um, um, very early 70s, and it was a time when one could develop a relationship with Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. So I was very fortunate. I was a VISTA volunteer at the time, and I lived in a farm labor camp, and um, they really taught me how to organize, and um, that was just a a gift for the rest of my life. And so I came home um, in 72, the strike was in California, and the War on Poverty offices were being shut down by Nixon at the time. And so I became the director of something called El Concilio Manzo, Manzo Area Council in Barrio Hollywood, the other West Side Barrios. And um, I was able to hire a staff. Which is in Tucson, Arizona, correct? It is. And are you from originally Tucson? Or? I'm not from Tucson, but I, I came when I was four. My my dad was the first general manager of KVUA. He built the station. Oh, the TV station. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing my brother climb up the the antenna, and you could just see this little white dot for his diaper on the top of the. Um, 
Yeah, so when I came back, um, the Border Patrol was raiding the soccer games in Menlo Park on Sunday afternoons. They were outside of St. Margaret's Church uh, after Mass. And so we just decided to, to organize and to um, familiarize ourselves with um, immigration law and rights, people's individual rights, and <coughs> began to um, have a series of community meetings and, you know, people put up signs in their house, do not enter without a valid search warrant and that kind of thing. And it really changed the character of the raids and they, they weren't around anymore. Um, but then a few years later, uh, myself, uh, a nun who was volunteering, and two other women were indicted on a 52-count federal felony indictment, alleging anything you did with undocumented people um, was a felony. And so that, uh, in the true spirit of the words of Cesar, that gave us an opportunity to organize. And was that due to what you were doing, organizing around in the neighborhoods in Tucson around the raids? Around the raids, yes, and educating the community about their their rights. And people put up, do not enter without a valid search warrant, signs on their houses. And um, so we became a target. We were all indicted. It took about a year, but the indictments were dismissed, and Jimmy Carter was elected president. And he he designated all of us as certified representatives. And that meant that as lay people, we were able to represent people in immigration court. And so we created then, there was a great influx of people from Salvador, the, the wars in Salvador coming up through Tucson. And of course the border was pretty much open at that time. And um, there were only five detention facilities in the country and one of them was in El Centro. And so we organized the first in-detention de in defense project in the country and would drive back and forth stay in a farm worker motel in El Centro and represent people all week in immigration court. And I would enter the notice of appearance for everybody. And so even though there were seven or eight judges on that bench, they couldn't have simultaneous hearings because I represented everyone that was in detention. So that, by that time you were a lawyer, you went to law? Nope. No, as a certified as a certified representative. And um, so that was a really good experience. We were able to raise, uh, I don't know, more than a million dollars in bond money, bonded people out. They went all over across the country. In the meantime, um, we collaborated with the folks that were creating the sanctuary movement in Tucson. Could you explain what the sanctuary movement Yeah, the sanctuary movement was um, a movement to get people out of Central America and safely across Mexico and relocated in the United States. And, um, you know, John Fife and uh, many others who've since left us uh, were key in that organizing and organizing churches principally. And then when we filled up all the churches with folks, went on to other institutions, and uh, literally thousands of people uh, were able to leave the border and go to the inner, inner lands of America. And then came the amnesty of 86, and people were able to legalize. And um, uh, it was after that that I went to law school. How many, uh, just a quick fact question, how many people um, were legalized in the 1986 
Oh goodness, hundreds of thousands. I don't hundreds know. Of yeah, I don't know off the top of my head, but we bonded more than three thousand out of El Centro. So, and, and other you know folks were all over the country doing this. So it was a significant, significant moment. So all of this then led to you to decide that you wanted to go to law school. Yeah, I decided after being indicted, and after being able to be effective as a certified rep. I decided that I should go to law school. A dear friend of mine um, convinced me. He was a, a professor at the law school in D.C., and Ed Morgan was his name. He's since moved on. And um, he was a great civil rights lawyer. And he just—I went to raise money one day for the sanctuary movement, and he closed his door and he said, I'm not leaving until you fill out this application. Then I'll give you money and then you can go. <laughs> yeah. And so so you won. <laughs> I did. I did. It was great. It was great. Pretty convincing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then so so you went to law school and then you came back to Tucson after that? Yeah, I worked a little bit in DC at uh the Latin American Youth Center. And uh that was a great experience. And then my my parents were elderly and began to sort of get sick and stuff and so I came back home. And um, just began to have adventures in Tucson. And were you and part of um, the sort of community activism that was going on around immigration issues and border issues? I, what year? There was like the night. Was that would that be the nineteen nineties? I came back in. Um, I came back in. Uh, I think 88 or 89, and of course in D.C., and um, maybe it was a little bit before that, maybe it was in 86. It was in the late 80s. And the East Coast, the, the AIDS pandemic was um, raging. And so being in D.C. and working at the Latin American Youth Center, I began to organize around, uh, because there's a, I'm sure there still is, a huge population of undocumented people in D.C., and um, so when I came home, I went to um, La Frontera, and Nelba Chavez was the director at the time, and uh, nothing was happening. There, there was a clinic for the Tucson Age Project, which did a lot of good stuff, predominantly for Anglo men, but there was nothing for the community. And so uh, I said, hey, I got this great idea. I did this in D.C., and she said, okay, come and work at La Frontera and do this. And so I created something called the People of Color United Against AIDS Campaign and um, hired people, raised money from, she was very helpful because she was an undersecretary before she went back to La Frontera. She was the founder, but in the meantime, she was an undersecretary. And um, so all of the people that worked on the project were people most affected by AIDS. They were um, needle users, they were bootleggers, um, gay men, uh, and all the different cultural aspects of being gay in various cultures. And so I did that for several years, and uh, we just organized in community and, and sort of, uh, you know, broke the glass on the floor of not talking about AIDS and who's affected by AIDS. And uh, really, it was a very effective project. 
And at one of the events we were having, because we had them in all the communities, the staff was representative of all the communities. So Don Autumn people were on staff, uh, bootleggers and Yaki needle users and African Americans and all the different communities that were affected. And I was, uh, we did one on the nation and uh, we always had the leaders speak. And so the, the chair, chairman of the Tanatham Nation spoke, and afterwards he came up to me and he said, I want you to be my lawyer. And I was like, what? I'm, I'm running this little project right now. I can't just sort of stop and turn into a lawyer. And uh, he said, no, I really do. I want you to, I want you to be my lawyer. So um, we took all the pieces of the People of Color United Against AIDS campaign and sort of gave some to the uh, Urban League and some to Chicanos por la Causa, some to La Frontera, some to Pascua, some to Tano Atom, and, and they all became institutionalized in those structures. And I went to work for the nation, and I was out there 10 years. I was general counsel for the executive branch, the chair and the vice chair. And um, that was a great experience and did some great things. When I went, there was no immigration um, presence on the nation's lands at all. And of course, which was what year? That was '93. Mm -hmm. And of course, now they're occupied. And um, we were able to do all sorts of all sorts of creative things, like um, got the Mexican government and the U.S. government to meet and recognize the Tonatham government as a sovereign all met at the port there at uh, Sonoita, and all the Autumn members who live on the other side were given visitor's visas with no cost. And all of the documents that Autumn wouldn't have as traditional Mexican citizens would have uh, were all waived, all those were waived, and the fees for the United States were waived because we're dealing with citizens of the sovereign. And so people had border crossing cards good for 10 years. And a couple of thousand people had those. And it really opened up access to um, programs and services that, as members of the Tanatham Nation, they had a right to enjoy, but they didn't have the ability to cross because they were viewed as nation-state Mexican citizens, not as primarily Tanatham, rec federally recognized American Indians. Could you um, explain, like going back to what you said about when you, when you first started, there was really no border patrol presence or immigration presence on, on That's the right. Tanatham Nation, but by the end, it was occupied. It was occupied. So could you just, it's always great talking to people who have this long, the long story of how, you know, the border has been built up over these decades. Could you, yeah. could you tell us a little bit about what you saw firsthand during those years. Yeah, the, the you know, the, the Tanatham land, traditional land, although now it is held by the sovereign of Mexico, but the traditional land is about twice as big as the reservation land in the United States. And of course, that's about the size of Connecticut. So that's a huge land mass on the other side. And it's full of sacred sites, traditional communities. Um, I mean, we're talking back to the beginning of time. We're, it's not, you know, a few hundred years. This is, this is the beginning of time. And so 
those communities would just do all sorts of very serious things and really fun things. Like there would be sort of the equivalent of a, a mini fiesta and a swap meet every weekend somewhere where the communities on the Arizona side and the communities on the Mexican side would come together. There's no fences, right? And people would bring what they had, baskets that they had made, things they wanted to sell, uh, food, livestock. Uh, sometimes there were like mini rodeos or horse races or um, traditional games, all, all sorts of stuff, music. And, and they were really um, lovely moments for people from both sides of this artificial line to, to come together. And, you know, when I went out in 93, the, the only, there were no fences, but there were those cement posts that have, like, a triangle on top that's, say, 30 degrees this way and 45 degrees that way. That's all there was. Well, like the border markers? Yeah. Like the monument things? Yeah. yeah. And not, like, real close, but you run into them. But that, that's all there was. And... Um, so that was really that was a really nice uh, interchange, and there's always been groups of various autumn autumn who live in Mexico, might be U.S. citizens, but on family historic family lands um, that are active in in local politics and as well as the nation's politics and that kind of thing, and um, so those events were very special, and then of course. There were traditional um, sacred events, like uh, you know, uh, going to uh, the caminata uh, um, on the various saints' days to to uh, sacred sites and uh, remembering burials that had taken uh, place, you know, years and years and just yesterday. Uh, that kind of cultural expression. And 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 it was sort of it sort of creeped, and the fences began to come. And um, when I left the nation, I left in to the spring of two thousand and three. Um, but when I when I left, the year that Department of Homeland Security was implemented. Yes, yeah. and it was the just the beginning of creating an an outdoor detention facility down by one of and then there were by then there were all gates on things there weren't big fences but there were barbed wire and that kind of stuff and there were swinging gates yes. and um, there was a road all the way along the border there had up up until then there had been roads that went um, north and south but there weren't very many that went this way unless they connected little communities you know it wasn't particular to the border and then by then there was a road that ran right along the border. And there were these sort of swinging, swinging gates. And there was the beginning of, of um, surveillance. And, and there was uh, the beginning of construction of an det outside detention facility. It, it, just for like those that might know, are you talking about the one near the San Miguel Gate? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yep. And that, that was the beginning. And of course now it's thoroughly militarized. It's occupied. Yeah. Not it just occupied. Yeah, it's always interesting when I hear people use that term. Could you um just just uh actually just for the sake of 
asking, could you elaborate on why people would call the nation, the Tonawatan nation, occupied? Well, because it's, you know, the whole nation. I was very, I was very, very lucky because I, I worked for, uh, under a couple of terms, um, with a, a fellow who was the, um, who was a traditional, traditional author. And so we would go to meetings and things, and I would go with them, and the whole meeting would be in, in autumn, I would have, of course, no idea what was going on. But if somebody had a question, then it would stop, and the question would come in English. I'd say the answer, and then it would all go back. And um, his name was Henry Ramon, and he was um, he was a traditional elder, and he um, he was a he was a he was a, a traditional leader in his community. And so we'd go to these places, and after the meeting, we'd just have a walk, and then he'd say, this, this plant is for this, and this is for this, and you know, over there's where uh, the soldiers came and began to take the kids to the uh, off-res off Indian schools. They came and they collected them, and he would just share his history, you know, and I, I just feel so blessed to have to have served him, because um, those kind of experiences um, one can't create, you know. I remember um, you have a book, don't you? Um, that was it. Is that you um, compiled testimonies? Yes. Henry Ramon, if I remember correctly, because I read the book. Yes. It's a very good book with yeah. all kinds of super interesting testimonies of Tanatam people talking about the border. Um, and Henry Ramon was one of the was it, was one of the people right. in in that book. What's the book's title again? Um, I have to remember. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, recommend, it's a highly good recommend piece. Recommended. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's a good piece. Um, so can you can you um moving along a little bit? Can you talk about um keep Tucson together? Sure. What KTT keep Tucson together? is when it was formed, why it was formed, sure. what was the kind of situation that motivated, inspired you to, um, along with other community members, to, to form Let KTT. me Let me tell you two little steps that took me where I am. One, when I left the nation, um, Raul Grijalva, a dear friend, was running for Congress the first time, and he was elected. So I went to D.C. with him um, and served uh, as of counsel because I had uh, been in D.C. the two years, two, one complete uh, two-year cycle in the House, advocating for the Tonawatham Citizenship Act, which is um, an act that I wrote and was introduced, and it had, um, had 130 co-sponsors, more or less, in the House. And it was to um, make all on the members, U.S. citizens, on the date that the Secretary of the Interior recognizes them as federally recognized American Indians. And unfortunately, it never got out of committee. Yeah. What, can you, just to get the chronology correct, the year of that was? Oh, those would have, that would have been 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. Yeah. I'm thinking of, I think it was um, Ned Norris Jr.'s. Um, comment 
and it was a little bit later, and I think he was he was testifying before Congress. Maybe it was 2006. It was the Secure Fence Act. Yeah. When he said, "Imagine bulldozers coming," he was talking about the fun, the the wall project, and he's, he had that really strong comment about it. imagining bulldozers coming into your community and digging up the graves of your ancestors. That's right. It's horrific. Yeah. Yes, I did that. I worked for Raul for a year. And then um, I always wanted to be a public defender, so I came here in 2004, and I've been here ever since. And in this office, I created a crimmigration. Did you have to get out of D.C.? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, I, I love D.C. I love it. I love it. But I just wanted to go with Raul for his first, his first run around the block, you know. And, and I wanted to see if the, we, there was anything we could do to resurrect the Don Autham Citizenship Act, but there wasn't. It just, there just wasn't. Hopefully there'll come a day when um, uh, we become a bit more enlightened, and if we say someone is a Native American, Native American, then that sort of should mean that they are also a U.S. citizen. I mean, they seem like they're inextricably um, attached, but, you know, it's, uh, Congress hasn't, hasn't seen that vision yet, doesn't share the vision with me quite yet. But um, because there are a few other border tribes border nation they have nations on this side and our tribes on the other side but so then I came here and I created the crimmigration team here which um, considers and uh, there are they are around the country but at that time it was very much sort of a cutting-edge thing that that figures if you have non-citizens charged with serious felonies you need to um, first figure out because for the client, the most important thing for them is the status. is It's not it's not the crime. It's not can I do less time? Can I do more time? Will you get me off miss? It's none of that. It's like can I stay here with my family? Yeah, and that note, can you explain that term, crimmigration? Sure. What that means? Yeah, crimmigration is when someone is charged. Um, well, our office only does felonies, but, but it also applies to mis misdemeanors. When someone's charged with a felony, then. You know, usually the defense attorney begins an analysis about the facts and the charge and do the facts substantiate the charge and that kind of thing. But when someone's not a citizen, whether they're a lawful permanent resident or they're a student or whatever they are, if they're not a U.S. citizen, um, you got to start the other side. You have to figure out what their status is, no status, been deported before, um, lawful permanent resident, student, victim of crime, whatever. Um, you've got to figure out where they fit. And then you look at the charge, and you try and figure out, okay, given current immigration law, is there a way to resolve the person's criminal situation in a way that doesn't have an adverse impact on, the, on their status? Because when you talk to folks, it's not that they don't care about the criminal matter. Yes, they want to get them out of jail. But stay with their family. You know, and since there hasn't been a legalization since 86, many, many of my clients, my PD clients and many clients that I represent in immigration court, um, have been here since 86 and have no status. Status. And have worked and paid taxes and blah, blah, blah. blah. And so um, that, that, it's like an, it's like uh, an initial, an, an additional uh, dimension that one has to 
to be competent, then one has to start there and do that analysis first and then figure out uh, the criminal side. So I started that in this office, and we have a, a thriving... Is that, is that part of the public defender? Yeah, yeah. And around the country, public defenders have um, uh, crimmigration units. And, and so that, what, I, what I'm, my goal is, is to... Um, we're running an initiative campaign at the moment, Justice for All, and that is to put on the ballot in um, November of 2024... Will there be a great turnout of voters? Um, the question of creating a public defender office in Pima County to represent people who are indigent and uh, are in removal proceedings so that um, no one goes alone. Because the consequences of tearing your family apart are a lot worse than you're going to go to jail for a year or two. Right, and... and I imagine that was what you're thinking with at least the Keep Tucson Together, that sort of... Well, Keep Tucson Be Together began... We we did sort of dabbling at Southside with people that wanted to become... Southside's a Presbyterian church in Yes. Tucson. So people that wanted to become citizens, um, people that wanted to immigrate their spouse, and just sort of little things, okay? And so it organized a, just a, a very small group of volunteers. And then President Obama announced DACA. And so, uh, which was in 2014, 2012, 2012, 12, 12, 11, 12 in there. And, um, you know, as, as is always the case, and I'm not critical because this is how some people make their living, people began to advertise, you know, for 2,000, 3,000, 1,000, I'll do your DACA work. And this application is not, is not hard. But, but it does have to be done right or it gets sent back, you know. And so uh, students themselves really weren't able to fill it out because it was easy to put the wrong thing in the wrong line and, you know, a typical government form kind of thing. So we put out a call and put out some ads on the radios and all that and said, um, come to Pueblo High School and we're going to do DACAs. We're going to do DACAs for free. And... Uh, so the first night, we have a clinic at Pueblo still every Thursday night, and we've had it since the beginning of the DACAs. And that's a high school in South Tucson. Yeah, it's a, it's a community high school. So we put out this call to the community, and about 3,000 people showed up. And it went to um, all the way from the building uh, and the campus through a huge parking lot all the way out into 12th. And that was sort of the birth of Keep Tucson Together. And, um, Do you have pictures of that? I'm sure they are somewhere. Um, you know, then we, we created a DACA team. We created a naturalization team, uh, one to process people who were eligible to become lawful permanent residents through a spouse or a parent or something, um, people to advise, a, a group to advise people who were charged with criminal offenses, um, just general immigration information. And, you know, it changes, it changes every day depending on who is the target for enforcement and who's coming. So there was a period where we didn't do very many asylums. You can imagine right now we do tons of asylums. And there was a time when it, most of our asylums were from 
uh, Guatemala or Salvador. And now the asylums are, uh, you know, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Honduras, uh, you know, all over the place. Um, at some African asylums. And so we, we organize um, like, like uh, research groups, the scholars, the thinkers, that, that dig out the country conditions. And if we can, you know, we say, well, where, where are you from? Well, I'm from so, such and such. And we have the scholars try and dig out what's going on in such and such, you know, to the extent that that's possible. Out of curiosity, just um, uh, thinking about all the different cases, um, are there any that strike, have strike you, any stories that strike you? They're horrific. They're terrible stories of, of torture, of uh, they're just they're horrific, and and they're they're horrific Me from Mexico and and all the countries from all the sending countries they are just absolutely horrific, you know. I've done this for a, a long time, and people tell me forms of torture that I haven't heard of before, and it's just. Uh, horrific. And so then, you know, uh, the other side of, of one is that, at least for me, um, a tremendous anger that our country, built on the values that we respect, um, makes it as difficult as possible for people to have relief and be safe. And so somebody makes it, and then, you know, their house is burned down, or their mother is raped and tortured and left for dead, and then the other siblings can't come. I mean, it, we, we, when I say that we are, our law is based on the original act of 1924, it really is. What can you? What is the original act? Of it's the it's the original act that created the immigration statutory scheme, mm -hmm. that said who could come, you and know. Who could come according to that? Oh well, in those days we favored the Anglo-Saxon countries, and they had practically unlimited admissions, um, as opposed to the rest of the world. <laughs> you know, and I'm talking about England and France, and you know. So in the original, in the original immigration nationality yeah. act, that had a lot of racial. Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, under and overtone. Clear, clear. Clearly, nothing opaque. And and so we see these situations that are incredible human crisis. The the act from nineteen twenty four, the immigration act from nineteen twenty four, affect today's. What do you see, how do you see it as an influence on today's realities? Yeah, it's the fundamental statutory framework. Obviously, it's been messed with along the way, but it's the fundamental, and the philosophies that are the underpinning and who's, um, uh, who's welcome and who's not. And, you know, you, you look at the asylum. You, asylees, you just watch the popular media. Asylum applicants are demonized as if they shouldn't come. There's another march coming, and they shouldn't come. You know, there's no reflection about what in the world would it take me to walk several thousand miles to somewhere I don't know and carry my babies in my arms? What would have happened to me 
to make me make me have that decision and find that courage. Rather, they're demonized. They're coming. They're invaders. You know, we our our ability to um, to care, to understand, to dig deep into circumstances, to have some human passion, is completely um, reconstructed into demonizing um, people who have suffered uh, such incredible uh, circumstances that we can't, most Americans couldn't even fathom. You know, if you sort of just go and knock on the door and talk to somebody and say, well, can you imagine if in front of you they raped your mother and then they cut her up with a machete and left her in pieces on your porch? Well, how'd that make you feel? Straight up question. I'm just doing door to door. How's that make you feel? You know, you're gonna you're gonna die. You're gonna fall out. You're gonna you're gonna call the cops. There's a crazy woman at my door. Get her get her out of here. You know, no, that's the reality. Or or we have unaccompanied children, and and you begin to try to talk to them, and they tell you things they've seen, and then you begin to understand why uh, someone who loved them entrusted them with a coyote to bring them. I mean, it, it, is, it is just an it is a incredible, incredible um, human rights um, disaster, that, a human disaster that's going on that has been packaged as if, you know, it's, uh, they didn't obey the rules. You, how, there are no rules. When you, you're watching your family members tortured, your til- children tortured or disappeared or killed in front of you or your house is burned down or, you know, your 14-year-old son has to join us and work in the cartel or he's going to be like the neighbor who was brought back in pieces. Get done. What's your answer, you know? So these are the stories, too, that you're dealing, you deal with on Every day, cases. every single day. Keep KTP. And how many... Um, people have you worked with? Do you well, know, like it's, it's been almost a decade now, right? Our naturalization team, I'm very, very proud of our naturalization team because we also, um, you know, a lot of times people who uh, are, are lawful permanent residents see them as, as in the old, the old term, braceros, arms. I'm just here to work and then I'll go back. Well, you can't go back anymore because what little money you have would be extorted and it's way too dangerous and so now you're going to stay here but you're just a lawful permanent resident and and so we have a team of people community people who reach out to the community and they just recently broke their 4000th naturalized citizen so all these years they've been working on naturalizing people 4000 4000 they just broke 4000 and um, we have another little team that looks at the more, uh, the more difficult questions of derivative citizenship, which means, you know, somebody's grandmother or even great-grandmother worked in Arizona, was born in Arizona, and worked in Arizona, and then went back and forth and came and had a child in Arizona, and, if, and then their child then moved back, and they came and went, but had a child in Mexico. Well, there may be a way for that child to be a derivative U.S. citizen. And there, 
it's very complicated law. Depends on what the years are, and and finding you know um, baptismal certificates and confirmation and things like that. We're very lucky because San Javier is a receptacle for all those archaic documents. Um, but uh, those are diff more difficult to establish. But there are many uh, U.S. citizens that that can't prove that they're U.S. citizens. I had a fellow that had a couple of felonies, and uh, he kept getting deported. And it took me a few years, but I established that he was a U.S. citizen. Now, he couldn't have established it by himself, and he would have gone to a, a private counsel. It probably would have been twenty-five or $30,000. You know, he was a working guy. So, so there are a lot of those kinds of things that we're able to do. We're able to file petitions for people to immigrate their spouse and uh, that kind of stuff. So, so getting to the question um, of we're starting to get low on time too. Um, um, the uh, of thinking of the the immigration appeals or whatever immigration court <laughs> board of immigration appeals. Yeah, there the that the suspension at least temporarily of your practice. Uh -huh. Is that could you could you talk a little about does that have to do with your the work you're just describing with KTT or is it something a part of it or what are sure could you talk like what are sure. the what are the accusations and what your kind sure. of thoughts are about sure this? the um uh, there were complaints from immigration judges interestingly enough who uh, have all left the bench and are now all retired and they were lodged in the uh, Trump years and so there was an administrative hearing. And uh, some of the uh, allegations were like, well, you failed to file something on such and such a date or that kind of thing. And um, so we had a hearing during the Trump years. And the judge um, uh, found me guilty of committing these infractions. And his uh, order was that I be barred from ever practicing in immigration court again. So we went to the Board of Immigration Appeals. And they upheld his decision, but they said, no, it's only good for two years. And after one year, you can ask to come back. And so at this moment... Um, and that decision just came down, right? Yeah, like in, July. in July. Yeah. And, uh, and so at the moment, we filed a... a see, immigration court's just an administrative court. I mean, in the community, it is seen as the court of the end of the world, the most powerful court in the world like the world court even. But um, in real time, it's just an administrative court. And so we've, applied, we've appealed that decision uh, in the federal court. And we're waiting for a hearing on that. And part of what we're asking is that I should, because that's not a final decision, since I have, can go to federal court and then I can go to the Ninth Circuit, that I should be able to uh, practice in immigration court in the meantime. So that's where the status of that is. But, but really, I think it's important to um, uh, figure out why, uh, why that happened and um, why it was allowed to happen. And um, one of the reasons is that if people appear without counsel, they can be deported in two or three hearings. And... Um, I, I don't remember the executive num exact number. I'll look around here. I have it on a card. 
for the last fiscal year that there were accurate figures. But it was in excess of 18,000 people who were deported from our little court. And, it, and they appeared without counsel? Or? Largely, yeah. largely. And they didn't appeal and, you know. and um, In what time period was that? One fiscal year. I think it was FY19. Because the, the pandemic screwed up the, has screwed up the numbers and the calendars. There hasn't been a, a pristine year since, since then. So when you go in and represent someone, you know, judge says, well, I need this application by X. Uh, there are rules that were issued in the Obama administration, suspended in Trump, <laughs> surprise, and reissued uh, in Biden that say, because all of our work is pro bono, so that says pro bono counsel. By, uh, you mean KTT's work? Yeah, yeah, and my representation in court. And every, every application we prepare, all the research, all of it's for free. And so um, both o o Obama and Biden issued these directives that said um, you should uh, accommodate pro bono counsel. So if pro bono counsel, the judge says, I'm going to set this hearing next week, pro bono counsel says, I can't finish the work that you've asked me to do by next week, that the judge has to accommodate, accommodate the pro bono counsel. Okay. Obviously, in the Trump years, Trump years that wasn't happening. Right, and that so they would just reject you if you asked for extra time. Yeah, and that executive order was lifted in the Trump years, and um, you know, so we we fought, and and I mean, sometimes there were circumstances where, um, you know, these clients, some of them barely get by, but some of them are abjectly poor, single moms, abjectly poor. Somebody's taking care of kids. Mom's working three jobs, making six bucks an hour, that kind of thing. Um, and and they, can't, they can't come in and meet with you and give you the information you need to file a form. So there were a couple of occasions in, in that group where we didn't file a form by the date. And um, obviously I'm not going to say to the judge, it was my client who didn't comply. I'm going to say it was something like it was just, it wasn't possible to have it by this time. Um, but as you recall, in the prior years of the Obama administration, pro bono counsel were given great um, uh, leniency in terms of filing applications and that kind of thing because we appear as a friend of the court. That, wouldn't, that would trigger uh, a firestorm of criticism in that period. And um, so that was, that was the genesis of a handful of complaints and was it also like when you had more leniency in earlier times, um, were you able to handle like more cases, like a lot of cases? Is, is there a certain thing that when there's no leniency but you have a lot of cases that they, they start, there's friction there? Or? Well, there's just friction period to have a pro bono, have a lawyer. I mean, they can't say much if you're retained, you know. But to have somebody, it's very irritating to, that... It's I, a certain percentage of the thousands that appear appear without counsel, the majority. So they can get off the calendar quick. So then you can put more people on the calendar. If you have a lawyer in front of you who know, not, if you have a, a lawyer in front of you who not only is a lawyer but is a pro bono lawyer and so sort of controls those deadlines because that's what the inst instructions are. 
then that really creates a lot of animosity. So a person without a counsel, will they just get bulldozed by, yes. the, by the immigration court? Absolutely. Like they're, they're, and they'll they're, be given they're gone pretty much or? they'll be given an application here's your asylum application bring it back next week and have supporting documents okay it's all in English what do you mean what's a supporting document how do I tell my story it, you know it is um, there aren't words I mean it's a sin it's a it's a crime against humanity. It's horrific. It's how in the world you can live with yourself when I give you an order. I know you don't understand the order. I know you can't comply with the order. But if you don't, you know, I'm going to order you out. And I don't care about tearing up your family. I don't care about you. I don't care about your kids. Now, you're sitting there. You're scared to death to begin with. And that's the message. It's not turn your shit in Tuesday. That's not what you hear. You hear what I just said, and you feel what I just said, you know? And, I mean, there are a lot of folks that don't come back because they can't come back. People that are alone, they just can't come back. I mean, they're screaming. These judges scream. I, I'm in Superior Court every single day, four or five different lawyers. Nobody screams. Miss Cowan, good morning. What about this? What about that? I can be representing somebody who's committed first-degree murder, who's done something really horrific, has trafficked tons of drugs, you know. It is complete politeness and respect. You go to immigration court, you go by yourself, you're going to get screamed at. By the, by the judge? Yes, by the judge. Wow. And so, you know, you have to get a lot of courage to go back. And no, I can't do this. And then, and then you know... I have a great deal of respect for my colleagues who are, are immigration lawyers. But, and most of my colleagues don't take cases from people who can't pay. But some do. And they extort money. And they give them a contract. And they're paying for five years. And they're putting up their house. Or, or the lawyer has a loan company on the side. You know, go to go to the ABC loan company. They'll help you out. You know, and then if you miss a payment, I'm not I'm not taking you no more. I mean, it, because this this population is so vulnerable, so so vulnerable, so easily exploited, and it's just something that, um, on top of their life experience why they came in the first place, whether it was because of abject poverty or violence, whatever it was, how they've been used here, how much did they get paid. And not everybody does that. We have a lot of employers that come to the clinic, and uh, I write subcontracts and it, and because that's not an employee-employee relationship. You're subcontracting with somebody to, you know, put on a roof. There's nothing wrong with that. So we do a lot of work for, for uh, stand-up uh, employers who don't take advantage of workers. But um, an awful lot of employers take advantage of people. You're lucky to have a job. I'm lucky to pay you six, seven bucks an hour. You know? So I hate to end this conversation because it's very rich. Um, 
last question, I guess. What, what, so what are the next steps for you? I guess you said you're appealing the suspension, right? But also KTT. Imagine KTT is going to continue its day-to-day work. And, and you have something that you want to be on the ballot, right? In 2024. <laughs> I don't know if you want to just address those things and we can... Yeah. So, yeah, we're appealing. We're, I'm appealing. Um, you know, I have no... Uh, I'm not dying to be in immigration court. <laughs> in fact, Are you I, able to go right now? Or are you, no. You're, yeah. I, I hate immigration court. I hate what it does to our well, community. Well, the judge is screaming. Yeah. I hate what it does to our community, you know, and I hate the fact that they're cloaked in uh, some quantum of respectability. But having said that, you know, people need representation. And so in terms of my particular circumstance, hopefully the, the federal court in Tucson will, will say, this is not a final decision because I'm going to consider the decision. So I'm going to stay the imposition of the sanction, and you can go back and work in immigration court. In the meantime, the clinic meets every Thursday at Pueblo, has, has done that since, um, since DACA, whenever that, 2011, 2012. And we continue to prepare forms and all of that. We, they're filed pro se. In other words, they're filed in the person's name. And, but, you know, these judges know what's, happen- know what's happening. They, they know these people can't produce these documents. And um, to, Just a quick, to the, to keep Tucson together has a website as well, so for people, they can yeah, check out the, yeah. okay, is it like ktt.org, or, or do you remember? No, we'll, I, no it, just look in our, we'll, we'll have it in our, yeah, in you, our write-up. On you the, can the find podcast. it, I, have, yeah. I don't know. We'll have, well, I'll have it. But So we, um, we very much try and keep that alive, and then uh, a lot of my colleagues have said, if you need somebody to go, just tell me. And so there have been a couple of cases um, since this happened where I did need people to go. An unaccompanied young woman, for example, um, uh, uh, yeah, just a different, different scenarios. So my colleagues go for me while we're trying to fight this. But, you know, uh, I'm very proud of KTT. I'm very proud of all the volunteers uh, that have put in so much work to support our community, our community, we're all here in our community. But the solution is not a clinic like KTT. The solution is institutionalizing the right to counsel because, you know, the circumstance, here we are in a public defender office, and everybody has a right to counsel if they're charged with a crime that could put them in jail for one day. Publicly funded right to counsel. Okay. Think of one day in jail compared to having your family torn apart forever. That's okay. You don't have a right to counsel. But if you're going to go to jail one day, you have a right to counsel. That, that's wrong. And the voters of Pima County, I believe, will change that. And it will, this initiative, Justice for All, will create a public defender office, young, well-educated, fiery lawyers who will represent people in immigration court. And the Tucson Immigration Court will wish it was back in the day. Thank you, Marga Cohen, for having this interview with us. We really do truly appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. Come again. Come to the clinic. We encourage everyone to come to the clinic. There's a job for you. Mm
You've been listening to the Border Chronicle podcast. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This episode was edited by me, Steve Heiss. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.